All right, well, today we're going to continue in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we are going to be shifting our attention from Samuel to uh, Saul. <clears throat> uh, last week, we read a rather lengthy section of Scripture. Uh, today, all the Scriptures that I will either reference or read are on your outline, and we will simply uh, get to those as, as I come to them. So we're not going to be showing them on the screen today. If you have a Bible uh, and you want to turn to those places, go ahead and uh, get ready. If you don't have a Bible, we have some house Bibles in the back on either side of the sound booth uh, that you would be welcome to. So all the scriptures we uh, will reference are there on the outline. <clears throat> the ninth chapter of 1 Samuel tells the story of how God revealed to the prophet Samuel that Saul had been chosen by God to be the first human king of Israel. Now you'll remember from weeks past that the people of Israel had demanded a human king and this was against God's wishes. It was displeasing to God. And as we've referenced several times already in the series, though it was against his wishes, though it was actually a sinful request, God granted their request. And he ultimately worked through this sinful request uh, for the ultimate good of the children of Israel, as this new monarchy would lead to King David, and, that, and he would lead to David's greater son, uh, Jesus Christ, who would obviously be a blessing not only to the people of Israel, but to the entire world, to you and I uh, here today. Though it was a sinful request, once God chose to grant the request, 1 Samuel 9, verses 16 and 17, let us know that it was God who chose Saul uh, to rule over Israel. Uh, so even though the request was sinful, God still involved himself in the process of selecting uh, the king. Verse 16 lets us know that God told Samuel, "...about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him leader over my people Israel." He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. And then verse 17 of chapter 9, When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Not only did God choose Saul, but the entire ninth chapter of the book of 1 Samuel reveals how God worked through seemingly random events, just everyday circumstances, chance events, they appeared to bring Saul to the place of coming before Samuel and being identified and anointed as king of Israel. We're not going to take time to look at that chapter in detail, but it makes for fascinating reading. If you haven't already done that, I'd encourage you to read through chapter 9 this week. But God worked through things like lost donkeys, just seemingly random events of life, just mundane stuff uh, to bring Saul before Samuel, who would listen to the voice of the Lord and anoint him king. So while the request for a king was a sinful one, God still chose the king for Israel. And he still guided the entire process leading to Saul becoming Israel's king. Bill Arnold notes that in choosing Saul, God was granting Israel uh, the man who in all of Israel came the nearest to fulfilling their idea of what a king should be. That's a sobering thought. 
when you consider the end of the story of Saul, which many of you are aware of, you realize the kind of man that Saul really was. Again, God chose Saul for the people, and God guided the process that brought Saul to the place of being king. Now, for those of you who have been reading through First and Second Samuel as part of our daily Bible reading here at the church, or for those of you who heard Stan uh, preach a couple of weeks ago when he was supposed to preach about Samuel but actually preached about Saul, uh, or <laughs> I, just ha- I just had to squeeze one more joke out of that, um, or if you're just familiar with this story in general, you know that Saul, this first king of Israel, is not one of the exemplary figures of the Bible. He's not. If you know anything about him, you know him as a jealous man. You know him as a man who was disobedient to God. You know him as a man who was hateful even toward people who cared about him. You know him as a rebellious man. You know him as a murderous man. And yet, in the beginning of the story of Saul... It doesn't appear this way. In fact, through chapters 9 9 through 11, Saul actually gets off to a pretty good start. It's a pretty commendable start. And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is consider some of the ways that Saul got off to a really good start. And we're going to draw out of his good start some things that we can apply to our own lives But then we're going to remind ourselves that his positive example is very short-lived. Then we're going to make some application for our own lives regarding the fact that Saul started well, but he failed to continue uh, well. So in these chapters, 9 through 11, I'm sure there are more, but there are at least five ways that Saul gets off to a good start that I want to bring to our attention today. The first is that he initially responds to these events that lead up to him becoming king in a humble manner. He he starts off in humility. In chapter 9, verses 19 through 29, It tells us uh, uh, about uh, Samuel and Saul coming together. And, and of course, the event that brought them together in the natural was uh, Saul was looking for the lost uh, donkeys. And and, uh, Samuel assures Saul when they come together that the donkeys have been found. He invites him to eat a meal together. And then he indicates to Saul that the next morning, Samuel will reveal to Saul, quote, all that is in your heart. Now, this is a statement that's uh, a little uncertain of the meaning, but likely it's a reference to what Samuel is going to reveal to Saul the next day about his future, things about Saul's destiny that to this point Saul was just completely unaware of. And then Samuel says in verse 20 of chapter 9, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Think of that. That's a pretty powerful line. All the desire of Israel is turned toward you and your family. Imagine if all the desire of the United States is turned toward you and your family. This is pretty heady stuff. This is, this is pretty, uh, pretty big deal here. And so Samuel is obviously hinting at what's going to happen the next day when he anoints Saul as king. Saul doesn't understand what it means yet. 
But he understands it means something very significant for his family and the people of Israel. And he replies in a way that to me seems clearly to indicate humility. We're told in verse 21, Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? It reminds you of Gideon's response when God called him to lead uh, the children of Israel. I guess people could argue for other attitudes behind such a response, but it reads pretty clearly to me as a humble response on the part of Saul. Now we find later in the story that uh, Saul is a head taller than anyone else in Israel. That's pretty tall. He is a man of impressive stature. And as Bill Arnold pointed out, it's probably true that what God did is he, he considered all that the people envisioned a great leader would be. And Saul had all of those things. All of those qualities, all of those physical characteristics. The point is that Saul would have been a very impressive person. Very impressive. But at this point, what we see from him is humility. There doesn't seem to be arrogance in him. You know, there are a few things that are more impressive than a truly impressive person who is still humble. Few things more appealing. You know, a wonderful athlete who doesn't act stuck up. Don't find that often, but a highly intelligent person who doesn't try to make you see how intelligent they are, like restrains the vocabulary just a little bit. A beautiful woman who is not aware, seemingly, of how beautiful she is, makes herself more attractive, less so when she's aware of it. Same with handsome men. I, I assume that's the same. <laughs> Saul seems humble as these dramatic events begin to happen in his life. And that's a good start. He's off to a good start here. Throughout the early part of chapter 10, we find more evidence of a good start for Saul. Throughout that chapter, we see several things. We see Saul anointed by Samuel as king. We read of him being assured three times by God that he had been chosen. We read that his heart was changed. And we read of him being empowered by God. In the very first verse of chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul king. Samuel then tells Saul that three things are going to happen to him that will serve as confirmation of his anointing as king. The third, and the only one that the fulfillment is recorded for us in detail, is found in verses 5 through 7, where Samuel tells Saul that he's going to encounter a procession of prophets that are going to be coming down from the high place. Just think of that as the place of worship. 
with lyres, tambourines, flutes, harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. He tells him that the Spirit of the Lord is going to come on him, and he will prophesy with the prophets, and that he'll be changed into a different person. And then in verse 7, Samuel says, Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then verse 9 starts to tell us of the fulfillment of these things that Samuel uh, has told Saul would happen. Uh, Verse 9 tells us that as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And then we're told that the three signs that Samuel predicted all were fulfilled that day. And then verses 10 through 12 give us the only detail, and that is of the third sign that was fulfilled. It reads this way, When they arrived at Gebeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, Something I discovered this week that I had never known, but I think is uh, pretty interesting, is that the prophets referenced here are very likely of a different sort than what we normally think of, different than what we have come to know of a prophet, say, in the life of Samuel. These prophets didn't necessarily communicate messages from God on behalf of God. They're uh, what were known or called aesthetic prophets, and, and their prophesying was more like Um, very dramatic religious experiences. And and so their prophesying was more like um, dancing to music, singing to music, rhythmic dancing, uh, uh, utterances to the Lord that maybe didn't seem to make a lot of sense naturally. They would often go into a trance-like state. In other words, they were known for their ecstatic behavior. They were the Pentecostals of their day, if you will. All right, bad joke. I can say that because I'm Pentecostal. If you were Pentecostal when you were young, it's okay. You can, you can laugh at that joke. It's all right. It is believed that Uh, These prophets were were not overly well-respected by the people, and it appears that they were not an enduring group. So what the prophesying was that Paul did here likely is that he simply joined in and experienced their ecstatic spiritual experience that they were having. That's likely what is happening. You say, well, what's the point of all of that? I'm not sure. Except for this. This experience helped to assure Saul that the power of God was upon him, that he had been chosen, and that the power of God would be evident in his reign as king. And just a side note, I think uh, something we can take from this is that we need to be very careful about judging the religious experiences of people. They don't look exactly like what we think they might look like. They're a little louder than our religious experiences. They're a little more demonstrative than ours. We need to be very careful. God is working through things that we even uh, don't understand. 
And so this, this experience that Paul had that might, if, if this is correct, uh, it looked a little odd, it served a very strong purpose in his life. A couple verses I want you to note. Verse 9, God changed Saul's heart. Verse 10, the Spirit of God came upon him in power. Now, we shouldn't necessarily think of this reference to God changing Saul's heart as being uh, similar to Christian conversion. I, I don't think that's exactly what's in view here. But what is true is that God realigned Saul's thinking so that he went from not being able to uh, imagine himself in the kind of role that he's being called to, to now being able to perceive himself and his role in national uh, Israel uh, the way that God wanted him to see it. He's now prepared to follow whatever path God wants to lead him down. The Spirit of God came upon him, preparing him to do what God was going to use him to do uh, uh, for Israel. So though we shouldn't necessarily think of this as similar to a Christian conversion, these are all good things. This is a, a good start. What we've seen in this chapter, if you read through the whole thing, is Saul anointed, Saul assured that God has chosen him, Saul changed, and now Saul empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a great start. And next we come to a very interesting part of the story, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. This is where Saul is actually publicly selected and presented to the people of Israel. And this is one that I want to take the time and read a rather lengthy section of Scripture here. So why don't you follow along if you have your Bibles, verses 17 through 27. Here's what we find. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, and all the kingdoms oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, this is so interesting to me, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gebeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. It's a fascinating story that I'm a, largely going to allow just to stand on its own reading, but I want to make a few comments about it. Uh, some people think it speaks poorly of Saul that he is hiding in the baggage. 
I mean, if you think of what's happened to him up to this point, he's been anointed by Samuel. He's had three assurances that God was with him. God has changed his heart. The Spirit of God has come upon him, and he's hiding in the baggage when it's time to be put forward as king. They may be right, but I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I can relate to that feeling. God assuring you over and over again, yes, you're supposed to do this, and you're still shrinking back and still saying, "Eh, I don't know, I don't know. I feel like we're still seeing some evidence of humility here in Saul. If not humility, at least a modesty that, that makes him reluctant to be set apart from the people into this first ever role for the nation of Israel. There might be some fear motivating him as well. This was not a great time for Israel. They had a lot of enemies against them. But you know, many of the heroes of faith were reluctant. Many of the heroes of faith were fearful. Many heroes of the faith had to have God say to them time and time again, No, no, no. You can do this. Go do this. I will be with you. And so I'm still seeing, in my reading, I'm still seeing something good in Saul here. He's not presumptuous. He's modest. And something I think points us toward that view is the last verse that we read. We're told of troublemakers that question Saul's kingship. We're told they despised him and brought him no gifts. Now what you have to understand is that this is a major insult to a new king. In not bringing gifts, they were going public with their disapproval of Saul as king. This would have been an obvious insult to the new king. And what are we told that Saul did? But Saul kept silent. He didn't rage. He didn't reprimand. He kept silent. I think we are seeing a modest and humble man. This is a good start. We go then into chapter 11, and we see what is probably the high point of Saul's life, his shining moment in history. The Ammonites, enemies of Israel, had besieged the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And when this is reported to Saul in 11.6, we read, When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. This was a righteous anger against the injustice that had been done to his people. A righteous anger against the injustice done to God's people. The Holy Spirit came on him, and in just a few verses later, we read in verse 11, the next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So chapter 11 tells us about The Spirit of God coming upon Saul in power, giving him the empowerment for a great victory, delivering the Israelites from the Ammonites. This is a good start. 
It's a great start, in fact. You don't get much better starts than what we're seeing in Saul. He's humble, at least he appears that way. He's anointed by God. He's changed and empowered by God. And now he delivers a great victory to the people of Israel here in this early part of his kingship. And there's one more thing that I think we need to mention about uh, Saul's good start. You remember those troublemakers who despised him and didn't bring him any gifts. Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So understand what's happening here. Saul has led the people to a great victory. The people are now very enamored with their new king. And they remember that some among them had questioned his selection. They remember that some had despised him, that some had disrespected him, that some had brought him no gifts, and the people want to kill the troublemakers. And here's something you need to understand. For a king at this time, death would have been the price that someone would have been expected to pay for disrespecting the king. That was the normal way of doing things. Saul would not have surprised anybody if he had demanded the death of these people. But Saul responds this way. No one shall be put to death today. This is an impressive display of mercy. He's merciful. Saul is looking really commendable. But then he does something even better. Not only does he show mercy to the people who disrespected him, but he gives God the credit for the victory he just won. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul had his first victory as king of Israel. And yet he immediately credits God for the victory and worships Yahweh. He's acknowledging here God's care for Israel. Yes, I'm your human king, but God is the one who looks out for you. God is the one who cares for us. It's really an acknowledgement by Saul that he is simply an agent of God. It was really God who was working through him to bring the victory. Yes, he's a king, but it's an acknowledgement that he is serving under Israel's real king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, I think we need to appreciate the impressive start that Saul is off to. 
On top of all we've already learned, he shows himself here to be merciful toward his fellow man and worshipful toward God. At this point in the story, it would be very difficult to be more impressed with someone than what the story leaves us being of Saul. At this point, he is one impressive, exemplary person. So what can we take from this story spanning these three chapters and apply to our own lives today? There are four things that are listed on your outline and one that isn't that I want to emphasize. I'm sure you'll find more applications for your life than these, but these are the ones that I want to highlight. First of all, you need to know, and I need to know, that God is always in control. Always. When it looks like God is in control, He is. But when it doesn't look like God's in control, He still is. When people turn to God and live in obedience, He's in control. But when people sinfully rebel and demand a king, God is still in control, still working his purposes. When Saul's wandering the countryside looking for his donkeys, God is in control. It looks like just everyday life. It looks like a chance meeting between he and Samuel. But God is working through those events to bring about his purposes. When God allows Israel to have a great victory over the Ammonites, God is obviously in control. But friends, when the Ammonites held Jabesh-Gilead captive, God was still in control. He is never without control. Now listen, I've got on record here many times, I'm not one of those people who says that everything that happens is God's will. But I am one of those people who believe that no matter what happens, whether it is good or bad, whether it looks like God's handiwork or it just looks like normal everyday life, whether it's something that causes me to be on a mountaintop or whether it puts me in a very low valley in some mysterious way that is above our pay grade, through all of those things, God is always in control. Nothing is ever outside his control. So the circumstances of your life, you need to know that God is not fretting. God is not worried. God is not flummoxed. God knows the next step you're going to take. He knows how that step will impact your life. He knows how that step will fit into his larger plan for your life and the life of your church and the life of your city. God isn't surprised by the circumstances of your life right now. You can trust him. It may not look like it from your current perspective, but God is in control. What's the the kid's song say? If you grew up in the church from when we were little kids, he's got the, the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, 
in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You need to know that God is in control, even if it does not look like he's in control. Here's a second application for us that I think we are to share in God's righteous anger at injustice. We need to share in God's righteous anger at injustice. We're told that Saul burned with anger when he heard that the Ammonites had Jabesh Gilead. Now understand the the construction of that, that verse. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he burned with anger. This was righteous anger. This was godly anger. And we need to share God's righteous anger over injustice. Christians are not to be people who look at the problems of the world, the injustices of the world, and shrug our shoulders and say, whatever. That's not how we're to be. Now, none of us individually and nor all of us together can fix the problems of the world. But we can do what we're able to do. We can do what is put in front of us to do. We can take the opportunity to impact situations as God gives us the opportunity. We can't all do everything. But we can do a few things that God lays on our hearts and that God puts in front of us. I I try not to be, you know, political here, but I don't consider this uh, a political issue. As a Christian, you should not have a whatever attitude toward abortion. You just shouldn't. You should have some righteous, godly anger because that is a great injustice. Now, you may not be able to end abortion, but you can do something. You can pray. You can pray. You can speak up when someone in your family or someone at the office starts spouting irreprehensible nonsense that a fetus isn't really a child. You can speak up. You can say something. You can do something. Some of you, not all of us, but some of us may be called to serve in a pro-life pregnancy center. By the way, I was so pleased last week to hear that uh, the meeting that Keisha set up between our church and Heartbeats resulted in, I think she told me, six or seven people taking applications uh, to consider the process of uh, volunteering with that wonderful organization. And so I commend you uh, for that. Amen. Yeah, that's great. You might be a student who sees another student getting bullied. It's unjust. It's unjust. You might know that it's going to be costly to your own social standing at school to do what's right. But finally you decide, you know what, this is just too wrong. I can't do nothing I can't say whatever to the way they're treating this kid that I know God loves. 
And so even though it might cost you your so-called friends, you stand up for what is right. You defend the kid who is being mercilessly abused by his or her fellow students. Christians don't look at the world's problems and say whatever. Injustice should bring about righteous anger in us. And though we can't fix the problems of the world, we can do what God puts in front of us to do. Here's the third application we can take for our own lives from what we've talked about today. When we respond graciously, boy, this is a hard one. When we respond graciously and mercifully to people who have mistreated us, we are pleasing to God. Actually, I think that one's just too hard, so I'm going to skip one by that. (laughs) Saul spared the lives of the people who had disrespected him. And again, keep in mind, in that culture, that's not what he would have been expected to do. It would have been okay with everybody, except for the people being killed, that, uh, that he would have decided he wasn't putting up with the disrespect. How do you respond? How do I respond to people who despise you? People who don't treat you well. People who talk bad about you. People who criticize you. Do you respond mercifully when mistreated? Or are you quick to fight? Are you quick to tell it like it is? Isn't that a wonderful phrase? I'm just going to tell it like it is. Are you quick to launch Project Destroy? against anyone and everyone that would dare treat you poorly. How many of you have ever had a Project Destroy game plan that you devised? I didn't actually mean for you to raise your hands. No. (laughs) God is pleased. God is pleased when we are merciful and gracious to people who mistreat us, criticize us, wrong us. Here's one that's not on your outline. When it looks like we've gained a great victory, in reality, God has given us the victory. God is pleased when we remember that, when we worship him appropriately. Like Saul did in these early days of his kingship, we need to remember that every victory of ours, whatever we consider a victory, is actually from the hand of God himself. We might think we've earned it. We might think we've earned the new job. We might think we've earned the diploma. And on some level, we were, we were involved. We, we did well. But even the things that we've earned are really given to us by God. And like Saul, we need to praise and worship God. We need to, to give him the worship he's due for these good things in our lives. So these four are all positive applications that we can take from what we have discovered about Saul today. But there's one that that we still need to acknowledge, one that we still need to mention. And and this is more of a, a negative thing that we need to learn from Saul's life. And we end where we started with this acknowledgement. With all this good stuff we've learned about Saul today, Saul is not known for his good start. I I grew up in the church, okay? I've, I've been a Christian as long as a person can be my age and be a Christian. 
I don't think I've ever heard what I've done here today. I don't think I've ever heard any emphasis on Saul's good start. Saul is not known for his good start. He is known for his disobedience. He is known for his rebellion, his jealousy, his rage, his hatefulness, his murderous deeds. Saul started well, and that was it. Chapter 11 is the high point of his life. It's all downhill from there. We have exhausted today all the good that can be said about Saul. From this point, he never serves as an example of how people should be. He only serves as an example of how not to be. Unlike Saul, we need to not only start well, but we need to continue in obedience to God And ultimately, we need to be committed to ending well. We need to be like Samuel, who offered a lifetime of obedience to God. Not like Saul, who started well, but ended horribly. You know, so many people start well with God. But then life happens. They cave in the face of the cares of life, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. How many people have you personally known or been aware of who started off well with God at one time in their life, looked as though they were walking very closely with the Lord, and today their lives are as far from God as a person could possibly be? Almost all of us have examples of that. And most of us, sadly, have many examples of that. How about you? Maybe you're not living in obvious rebellion against God. But how many of us are tolerating in our lives a slow drift away from God? making a little concession to the enemy in this area of our lives and in this area of our lives and then a little larger concession. Think about your own life. Be honest with yourself. Do you see this happening in you? If you do, you need to deal with it now. You need to stop it now. You need to turn it around now. Don't allow it to go any further than where it's gone to this point. Let's be people who don't just start off right. Let's be people who continue in obedience to God. And let's be people who end well. People who are faithful to the end of our lives. Those are the kind of people that please God. Those are the kind of people that hear, well done good and faithful servant. If we are honest with ourselves and say, yes, I, I have been drifting. Let's recommit ourselves today. Let's recommit ourselves today to continuing in obedience, to seeing things all the way through,
Let's recommit ourselves to living lives that when our lives are over, people will say of us, he ended well. She ended well. Why don't you stand